Welcome to the Richard Roper Show. Thanks to everyone who is listening and downloading and sharing and all of that great stuff. Lots going on in the world of pop culture. We're going to get right to it in just one moment. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. That's AmericanEagle.com. That is AmericanEagle.com. All right, I wanted to start, guys, by talking about some kind of serious stuff. You know, this podcast originally was called Screen Time. Because we wanted to talk about everything you could get on a screen, whether it's a small screen, your phone, an iPad, uh, the big screen, the movie screen, concert screens, anything that you can see on a screen, and, and including sometimes the world of news and the world of sports. Now, as I'm recording this, uh, you know, I want to put this caveat in here. As I'm recording this, I don't know the full extent of Hurricane Idalia or Tropical Storm Idalia that was hitting Florida. So I want to, you know, put that caveat out there that, you know, obviously we hope that everybody was safe and continues to be safe and that the damage wasn't as bad as it was. Uh, what I want to talk about is not necessarily specific to Hurricane Adalia, but to hurricane coverage. And you guys might know where I'm going here. It drives me effing bonkers every time when we get these severe weather stories and this has been going on for decades and i'm talking about the reporters who don the the windbreakers and the umbrellas and if it's the winter time you know all the heavy stuff and then they go out in the middle of the worst storms imaginable and tell you not to go out in these storms and early on in the coverage of uh, hurricane adelia i'm clicking around and there it is on various cable news networks these various correspondents, one dude almost getting blown away. And I just, it's just to me, it's the worst kind of pandering stunt bullshit that really adds nothing to the story. I don't think it does. I worked in TV news, actual news on and off for years. I actually once did a parody piece for the affiliate that I worked for in Chicago in which I, I went out in super cold weather and then told everybody the five things they should do in super cold weather, starting with don't be out in super cold weather. Some reporters here were not too thrilled with that because they have to do that, and it's not their fault. They're told to do that. But the hurricane stuff, you can show the visuals and you can do the reporting from a safe spot, and it drives me nuts. These reporters, they're almost getting knocked over. Stuff's flying by them. Uh, and then the anchors will say like, oh, but I don't know, Bob, you, you maybe you should come in. It's starting to get crazy. Stay safe out there. Listen, you're not a war correspondent. You know, that's a very valuable tool that we've had for more than 100 years where brave men and women go into the, the most dangerous situations imaginable to tell us what's happening you know, whether it's going all the way back to the brilliant World War II correspondents or the Vietnam reporters all the way through modern times. In a lot of cases, if we didn't have those reporters there, if they weren't embedded, we would not know the truth about the state of the war. Certainly that was the case 
with the Vietnam War, where that war was literally televised and people saw things that were very different from what the government was telling us. And that's very valuable stuff. And a lot of reporters have sacrificed everything and even given their lives in the name of that. Uh, these storms are very serious business as well. And lives are sometimes at stake. But you don't have to go out in the middle of it to report on it. You can be on site, but safe. And it kills me to see these reporters who, again, it, it's not, the, you know, that's the assignment they've been given. And some of them you can tell are loving it because they really kind of lean into it literally and and spiritually, if you will. And others you could tell they're just like, what the fuck am I doing out here? And then they'll show somebody two blocks away on their bicycle or their kayak going down the street. And they'll be like, well, these people are clearly being irresponsible and reckless. So are you. Stop it. Now, I did I did want to read from this piece by Tom Jones in Pointer. Pointer's a, a, a cool uh, it's a website, it's an institute. They, they do a lot of, you know, looking at the world of journalism. And Tom Jones mentioned the same thing that I'm talking about. Uh, he's, he writes, you know, surely viewers might be wondering if it's dangerous for residents and tourists to be on the beach. Why are reporters on the beach? He mentions that ABC, I think this is a local ABC meteorologist, said one of the things to keep in mind is that we have our reporters stationed strategically. We put a lot of thought and care into where are they positioned. And I respect that, although you really can't predict these storms exactly. That's kind of the point. So, uh, you know, putting them out there saying, well, we're, you know, yeah, of course there's safety concerns. Uh, it's also another person saying that that believes in this type of coverage says it's some value to the viewer. They can see the intensity of a storm. It can serve as a proxy for viewers who might have been evacuated and are thinking of going back or locked in a shelter. But it's sort of like you're saying, okay, so we're going to sacrifice one of our reporters to tell everybody how fucking bad it is. Again, I think you could do that without putting human beings out there. So, uh, again, best wishes and, and sincere hopes and prayers for everybody who is affected by this storm and all storms. But I just wish some of these news executives and producers would say, you know what, we're not doing that anymore. We're not going to put our reporters out there. We're not going to, because I, I don't know. From what I can tell anecdotally and certainly social media and stuff, the reaction from almost everybody is, why are they doing this? Do they think we're stupid? It's condescending. It's it, it's exploiting the reporter. It's, you know, it's just cheap television. So I, I just hope they'd stop. Now, in the world of sports, I know a lot of you know I'm here in Chicago, and here in Chicago we have two baseball teams, Chicago Cubs and Chicago White Sox, and I am a huge Chicago White Sox fan. I used to be a season ticket holder, grew up about 15 miles south of uh, Old Comiskey Park. That was the only ballpark we ever went to growing up. Everybody in my family pretty much were Sox fans. I wrote a book called Sox in the City, available now to this day about being a White Sox fan. But I have to tell you guys, and we're, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of, of actual sports. That's there are enough uh, sports podcasts out there. But I do have to tell you that the Chicago White Sox, my team, they are maybe the most batshit, crazy, uh, strange team in the history of sports. Going back 100 years, the weirdest things are always happening with the White Sox. It, it used to kill me. Now, the, the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, and, and good for you, Cubs fans. I do have a lot of friends and people I love who are Cubs fans. So I, I'm not one of those White Sox fans who begrudged that. But as you may know, there's always been this talk about the curse of the Cubs because they hadn't won a pennant uh, or they hadn't won a World Series in decades. They actually hadn't been in the World Series before 2016. It was 1945. They played the Tigers and lost. And then you had to go way back when. Well, the White Sox also hadn't won anything, but that's another story. 
But all anybody ever talked about, because the Cubbies are lovable, and the Cubbies were on cable TV early on, and Harry Carey, who originally, by the way, was a Cardinals announcer, then with Oakland, then with the White Sox, then with the Cubs. And by the way, he started the tradition of singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game on the South Side. But okay, a little chip on my shoulder about all of that. But all this talk about the curse of the Cubs, and I'm like, you guys, the White Sox are the cursed team. The White Sox are the team that in 1919 through the World Series. Eight members of the so-called Black Sox conspired to throw the World Series. They lost the World Series because eight players were getting paid and they, because they resented the, their cheap-ass owner. And it, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. Of course, there was the movie Eight Men Out, which is one of the best baseball films of all time, uh, John Sayles, uh, and a terrific cast. And... Uh, you know, this legend and lore and Shoeless Joe Jackson was among the one of the greatest hitters of all time, was among the eight players who were eventually banned. It took like a couple of years. There were hearings and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and people point out that, for example, Shoeless Joe actually had a really great World Series. A couple of the other players did. But if you were in on it, you didn't report it. You were also part of the conspiracy. Also, about halfway through the players of the World Series, some of the players thought they weren't going to get paid. So then they started playing really well. But then there were gamblers who were coming to them saying, we know where your families live. I mean, it's a it's a crazy story. But again, the White Sox, OK, 1919, they threw the World Series. Now I'm going to I'm going to just I'm going to give you a few other crazy stories about my Chicago White Sox. 1959. OK. The White Sox, uh, they finally clinched the pennant. You know, that was back in the days when the Yankees were winning almost every year. Cleveland had some really big teams, and the White Sox were not good. In 59, it all comes together. They clinched the pennant in a game in Cleveland. Now, meanwhile, in Chicago. Now, remember, this is early days of television and then, of course, radio, but not everybody in the city. You know, by the time you get to 2016, whether, whether you were a fan or not, you knew the Cubs were playing to clinch the pennant or in playoff games or World Series games. You couldn't avoid it. 1959, the Sox clinched the pennant, and Chicago Fire Commissioner Robert Quinn ordered the air raid sirens to go off all over the city at like 9.30 at night. Air raid sirens at the height of the Cold War, people. And the news reports of the time say a lot of people, they ran to shelters, uh, they were panicking, they were you know trying to protect their kids because they had no idea what those air raid sirens were all about. It's not like you could just you know instantly go online and figure it out. And... Uh, and a lot of people figure that Mayor Daly, the first Mayor Daly, actually ordered the air raid sirens to go off. And then when it backfired, he said to Fire Commissioner Quinn, you're going to have to take the heat on this one. They went off for like seven minutes, I believe. And then Quinn famously said in the news, he said, well, you know, it worked out. It's a really good test. So in case there is a nuclear war, we know our air raid sirens work. This is kind of a cool story. When you think about how long ago this was, more than 60 years ago, in April of 1960, so the Sox had an owner called Bill Veck. You've got to look him up. He's legendary. He had a peg leg. Uh, he was all about, he was the guy actually who, uh, when he worked with the Cubs, was the one that came up with the idea of the ivy on the walls of Wrigley Field. He uh, famously hired a little person to play baseball. And, of course, the strike zone, Eddie Goodell, I think his name was back in the day. Uh, his strike zone was like two and a half inches. And in 1960, uh, Bill Veck, installed what they called the exploding scoreboard. That was the first scoreboard that, and it, this was like back in the day. So like it shot actual badass fireworks when the Sox players would hit home runs and it had pinwheels that twirled. And he was inspired by the Jimmy Cagney movie, the time of your life. Cagney's playing pinball and all those things were going off in the pinball machine. And that's how he came up with the idea 
of the exploding scoreboard. And if you look up online too, the scoreboard, it's pretty great because throughout the 60s and the 70s, they had these giant ass speakers, like these big speakers facing outward that you'd see like at a Led Zeppelin concert at Comiskey Park. You could barely hear yourself in there. First exploding scoreboard. Where did you get the idea for that? To show a time of your life, if you remember, there was a sitting in the back of the saloon. Every once in a while, a guy would come up and get another roll of nickels, and he'd go back and play a pinball game. And nothing happened, and nothing happened. But you knew, what is there? there's some point to this. And just before the final curtain, he hits the jackpot, and everything happened. The whole board exploded, the flags came up, it played Dixie. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. Because that emphasizes the importance of home. Home runs really basically are strangely enough, except for the result, are dull. Because it happens so fast. It isn't like a triple with a basis pool with everybody running and keep running. It's just boom and it's gone. So I thought, ah, we'll try and make this more dramatic. Um, and in fact, I want to mention this too. This is actually a cool thing. Uh, one of the last shows the Beatles ever performed live in 1965 was at Old Comiskey Park. They played... I looked this up. They played a 3 p.m. show for the kids, I guess, and an 8 p.m. show. The first concert was seen by 25,000, which means it did not sell out, crazily enough. The second, 37,000. That's pretty close to a sellout. The Beatles back then, they had a, the tickets, by the way, were $250, $450, and $5.50. They would do a set of about 10 to 12 songs. That was it in 65. So they did Twist and Shout, She's a Woman, I Feel Fine, Ticket to Ride, Can't Buy Me Love, Help. Hard Day's Night. All those songs, by the way, are about two minutes long, two and a half minutes long. So they would do like 12 songs and they were done. Less than an hour. They'd have opening acts, but that was it. So the Beatles played Comiskey Park in 65. Cut to, flash forward to 1976, where the White Sox famously wore short pants. Again, you got to look it up to see them. They wore navy blue shorts and old-timey white jerseys with blue collars just because Bill Vex said, hey, it's hot. Let these guys play in shorts. Can you imagine that? The Sox, you know, what are they going to do? They went along with it. It looked ridiculous. And I don't know how anybody did. They must have got all strawberries on their knees sliding and stuff. But again, just, just in my theme of in keeping with the White Sox were always entertaining, even if they weren't any good. And then famously in 1979, July 12th, 1979, Disco Demolition Night, Steve Dahl, a legendary DJ, young radio host in Chicago and his partner, Gary Meyer. So Steve had worked at a station in Chicago that went disco, okay? They turned into the disco format. He was let go. He went to The Loop, which is a hard rock station or classic rock station, WLUP, station that I worked at in uh, subsequent years. See, I'm doing my radio voice right now. The Loop. You're listening to The Loop, 97.9 FM, Chicago. It's a two for Tuesday. Let's hear from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But anyway, uh, 591. Uh, I'm not going to say the number because it's probably still the working number there. Um, so so they, so Steve comes in. I think he was 24 at the time. And, you know, it's this kind of crazy genius. And uh, Bill Vec's son, Mike Vec, was involved in this too. They decide they're going to do a disco demolition night, bring a disco record to the park for admission for 98 cents because that, again, the frequency, 97.9, the loop. Bring a disco record. They're going to put them in a big bin and blow them up in center field uh, between games of a doubleheader. It was the middle of the summer, 1979, July. White Sox playing the Tigers. Now, I will tell you, I was there. A lot of people will say they, they were there. I was 18. But I was, honestly, I was there, guys. I was in the right field, upper deck. They used to have two decks in the outfield at Old Comiskey Park. So, at halftime, or halftime, in between, <laughs> halftime, uh, between games of this doubleheader, 
the crowd's all worked up. Steve goes out there, kind of, I don't know, he dressed like kind of a general, I guess it's the anti-disco army or some shit. Uh, and he goes, we're going to blow up these records. And they, they, they literally blew up the records with explosives in center field. They went all over the place, shards of vinyl going everywhere. Uh, and then small fires started breaking out. And then the fans, thousands of fans rushed the field, just kind of going nuts like they were at Woodstock. Uh, they could not control the crowd. Now, there was not violence. They were just uh, just worked up. I stayed in the right field upper deck, by the way. I don't even know. I could have made my way down if I wanted to. But even then, I was like, why would I go out on that field? It was insane. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Dad thought I got hustled. He was always of the opinion that the station knew that it was going to be a lot bigger than I had any idea. I always took one great offense more than anything else. Don't blame us. We did a promotion that overworked. You got to give them credit, though. I mean, they did get a big crowd at the ballpark. That's stupid. You're stupid for saying that. <laughs> I want to tell you right now. <laughs> you talk to people in the radio business, and they'll tell you that overnight, <laughs> stations stop being disco stations. <laughs> The Bee Gees actually blamed me for killing Disco, which I felt was a victory for me. I took that as a win. We did a promotion that, that caused a forfeiture. I regret that. As a cultural event, I'm kind of proud of it. I think there's a documentary that they're working on about Disco Demolition. And even some, some have talked about it, even Dazed and Confused type feature film. Because it was this, it became this kind of complicated thing because it was anti-disco. And, and years after that, people were saying it was anti-gay. I don't think it was. Although obviously the disco movement, you know, was embraced by the gay culture. I think it was just a, a 24-year-old DJ who had been fired from a station because they went disco and then was at a rock station coming up with a wacky promo that got out of control that was not well thought through. There, The, the old park at Comiskey, I think it seated close to 50,000, and there were something like 70,000 people there, including thousands who couldn't get in. Nobody, nobody thought that was going to happen, that there would be that kind of a turnout. Uh, the Sox actually had a forfeit, game two of the doubleheader. You look it up. July 12th, 1979, they had to forfeit because the field was unplayable. Disco demolition night, it shall live in infamy. Uh, all of this was brought about because just recently, the latest story, and it's an ongoing story, but on a Friday night game in August of 2023, this year, folks, th this could have been really tragic and horrible, uh, a gun went off and two women were slightly injured in the left field stands. It was very uh, chaotic, but not mass panic because people didn't know what happened. Nobody saw a gun and they did not stop the game. In fact, they continued with the game. There was going to be a concert after the game. Um, Tone Loke, uh, Vanilla Ice, Rob Bass, I believe. So it was like a 90s concert. They decided to cancel the concert. They still didn't tell the fans why. They said there were technical issues. And then the news reported that guns, uh, shots were fired, that bullets were discovered. Uh, the initial reports indicated that it's possible the shots were fired from far outside the ballpark from as much as a half mile away. Cause you know, got to remember this folks, you know, if you shoot a gun into the air, bullet comes up, bullet comes down. It's why uh, in Chicago and I'm sure in other places, but I once did a ride around uh, right along with the uh, Chicago cops on new year's Eve and at 1158, well, a little earlier than that, they pulled under a viaduct and said, we stay here until the shots are done because they're just bullets flying everywhere. Randomly, not at us, but randomly. And then comes the story, folks. And again, as of this recording, we don't know 
for sure. But sources are saying that the gun was actually inside the ballpark. How could you get the gun past security? The report says the shooting was caused by a woman who had hid the gun in the folds of her belly fat. And that's how she was able to bypass security. She tucked her gun in her gut. And then the gun accidentally went off. That's the report. The police have yet to confirm this, but some pretty good reporters in Chicago have said that's the story that they've got confirmed. As of this broadcast, we don't know. As of this podcast, we don't know. But that's insane. In the folds of her belly fat, she puts a gun. Why? We don't know. And then I guess maybe she got up to stretch and it fell. I mean, it's the most disgusting thing. It's just, it's insane. The shooting happened in left field during the third inning of Friday's game against Oakland. The brother of the younger woman told the Sun-Times they heard a pop but didn't think it was a gunshot. They weren't sure what happened until they looked behind them to see the other woman who had been injured. Security and police cleared out the section where they were sitting, but the game did continue. Initially, police had asked the Sox to pause the game, but later it was determined there was no active threat, so the game did continue. Police say they didn't want to create a panic. Both women should be okay. The younger of the two had a graze wound to her stomach. The Sox have been pretty tight-lipped about the shooting. The Tribune reporting the police learned the 42-year-old, who is a season ticket holder from the suburbs, had a valid firearms card. She has found herself the focus of social media posts that alleged she somehow got the gun past security in bag checks and into the park. No gun was found at Sox Park, by the way. Her attorney tells the Tribune in a statement they reviewed photographic evidence and had medical experts look at x-rays of the injury and report that the wound was not self-inflicted and was not the result of her accidentally firing the gun. Those are my Chicago White Sox, who, by the way, are really, really bad this year. And we hope that changes at some point soon. Oh, I wanted to do one more story. Um, let's take a break. A couple more stories. One story for sure I wanted to get to involving uh, Paris Jackson, the daughter of Michael Jackson. Why don't we take a break, talk about Portillo's, and we'll be right back. All right, kids, let's talk about Portillo's. It's one of my favorite places to eat on the planet Earth. My delivery history will bear this out. I also happen to live within walking distance of one of the Chicago Portillo's. Yes, that's right. I'm that lucky. It is amazing. You could order from the restaurant or the drive-thru, but if it's not near you, you can go to Portillo's.com. Portillo's.com and order. They got French fries. They got all kinds of comfort food. The amazing hot dogs, the Italian beef, the Italian sauces, some really good salads, by the way, if you want to take it a little bit easy because you want to have a little bit room left for the chocolate cake, the best chocolate cake in the world. Think about it. Portillo's.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. That's how you spell it. Portillo's.com. I'm just going to do this last story. I've got some other stuff, but we're going to save it for the next podcast, folks. But I I did want to get into this because this is, again, people. I don't know about people sometimes. Not you people. You people are the best people. You're the people who need people. You're the best kind of people. But as we all know by now, uh, social media and the online world just sometimes just brings out the monsters in people. This is insane. 
But I saw this story and I looked it up and it actually happened. Okay, so Michael Jackson's daughter, Paris Jackson. Now, she's 25 years old. She's a model. She's an actor. She's a good actor, by the way. She's done some pretty good stuff. Musician. She's 25 years old. Of course, um, daughter of Michael Jackson. It recently would have been his 65th birthday. Now, Paris Jackson did not publicly acknowledge initially her father, her late father's birthday. And according to reports, was absolutely destroyed on social media by people telling her she was the worst person in the world. Some people were telling her that she should commit suicide and kill herself because she's awful because she didn't pay tribute to her father on social media. Folks, and this goes back to the people that think that Taylor Swift is their friend or Adele is just performing for her or they have the right to run on the field and uh, hug Ronald Acuna Jr., which happened recently at a Braves-Rockies game. You don't know these people, and they don't know you shit, other than what they do on the field of play uh, as actors, as performers, and that's it. Paris Jackson has no obligation, zero obligation whatsoever to share her thoughts, memories, and feelings with you because you worshiped Michael Jackson. And we're not going to get into whether you should have or not. Let's just say it could be any pop star. She don't owe you shit. See that? Now you're making me lose my education, such as it is. She don't owe you shit, but she doesn't, man. The idea that, oh, she didn't mention her father on what would have been his 65th birthday. She didn't love him. Seriously. What is wrong with you people? So then Paris Jackson feels like she's got to go out there and defend herself because then, you know, you, all this stuff is hanging out there and either you ignore it and people go, see, she's ignoring us. She knows we're right. So on an Instagram story, she says, uh, and t I'm just going to quote her because I think this is just perfect. Today is my dad's birthday. Back when he was alive, he used to hate anybody acknowledging his birthday, wishing him happy birthday, celebrating it. Nothing like that, says Paris Jackson. He actually didn't want us to even know when his birthday was because he didn't want us to throw a party or anything like that. That being said, social media is apparently how people express their love and affection these days. And if you don't wish someone a happy birthday via social media, it apparently means you don't love them and that you don't care about them. So... Good for Paris Jackson. They're basically measuring my love, she said, for my own father based off of what I post on Instagram. He put 50 years of blood, sweat, tears, love, and passion into doing what he did so that I could stand up here on stage in front of you and scream into a microphone. So I owe everything to him, she said in this clip, this particular clip. Uh, good for Paris Jackson for responding to this in that manner. Everything she says is true. Again, I just... Let's keep perspective, folks. You know, I also, it's interesting, I looked this up because I remember that Michael Jackson was brought up as a Jehovah's Witness and was a Jehovah's Witness for a long time. People would tell, tell these stories, not apocryphal, I guess, about him, you know, going door to door as Jehovah's Witnesses do. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe in celebrating birthdays. Uh, in their particular line of belief, that's considered to be a kind of a brazen, self-aggrandizing thing. So they don't celebrate birthdays. Now, as I recall, Michael Jackson, then I believe he left Jehovah's Witnesses at some point. But that might have been one of the reasons why at some point in his life, he didn't want his birthday acknowledged because he was a Jehovah's Witness. But regardless of that, the children, and you know, there are a lot of grown children of uh, late adored celebrities and world famous figures, including, you know, Martin Luther King Jr.'s children who do a wonderful job, I think, of keeping their, their, their late father, their late mother's memories alive. In some cases, 
uh, talking a lot about their work. And, and I think that's wonderful, but they don't owe us that at all. If you're the child of a famous person, whether they're with us or not, you don't owe anybody any thoughts on social media about your family. So good for Paris Jackson. I think she responded in the proper way. Let's leave on that note. We will talk again soon. Thanks so much to everybody for listening.